Hi, this is Tzvi Freeman for Chabad.org. You may have read some of my articles on the site or seen some of my books. But for now, I want you to just sit back and let me turn your world on its head. The Pasha starts off, Re'e, see. See that I am giving to you today a blessing and a curse. Okay, so God gives blessings, but how is it conceivable that God gives curses? Isn't that the whole notion of faith in a creator, that life is therefore essentially purposeful and good? So rather, at every moment, an endless current of divine creative energy streams into our world from the fountain of all delight and pleasure, sustaining all existence, providing life and sentience to all beings. And that is good, the ultimate good. At times, that energy comes measured and filtered to suit our world. So we perceive its goodness immediately and openly. But at other times, it comes below as it is above, from a place where goodness is understood on an infinitely higher and deeper plane than in our mundane and shallow world. And so, like a mighty river of raw, unbridled energy that has broken through its dam, it rearranges the ecosystem of our reality with a fury. Nothing will go untouched. Nothing will remain the same ever again. If our world has been prepared for such a torrent, if the channels of our minds are opened wide and deep, our hearts softened as well-tilled soil, then these rains will come as a great blessing of life and joy. If not, they will appear as a curse until we grow from them and learn to embrace them. The ancient mentors tells, In the heavens there is no fire and brimstone. Only for the earth do such things appear to come from there. And yet, yet there is something else. There are times when an intensely dark energy enters the world that even the most enlightened mind cannot begin to contain. A jolt from a place beyond grasping, from the very core of being that no creature can enter or perceive without surrendering its very existence. Those are the times when we look at what is happening to us and to our world and nothing makes sense. No justification suffices when we recoil in horror and exclaim, if there is a God, how could this be? But God, it seems, does not require we understand him in order that he exist. So we don't understand. Instead, we're outraged. And justifiably so. Yet, bereft of any other choice aside from our own oblivion, we choose to believe despite the vision of our eyes, to plow stubbornly forward through the thick, muddy darkness in the conviction that it must have some end, some meaning. We choose to suffer its bruises, lend it our blood, pour into it our streams of tears, allow it to break us, harden us, to expose the very core of our souls until its intense light may enter into our bones. We come to know the unknowable, the entire world, becomes bathed in that knowledge. 
And that is the story, the entire story, of the Jewish people. How is it possible to know the unknowable? can't be told to us. Neither can we simply open our eyes and gaze upon it. Only once we have swam through the rage of its deluge, suffered its scars, fallen with its brutal punches, confronted utter and absolute darkness in its own den, and yet pushed forward with a power of our souls we never imagined we had, only then will it disclose to us the secrets it holds within the eye of its storm. At that time, we'll look in our rearview mirror and see the road behind, and it will be all good, only good, the ultimate good. Which is why we must be told to see and not simply know or understand. God is telling us, open your eyes and look deeper, much deeper, and you will see inside each curse blessings you could never have imagined. For all the pain and all the sorrow, the loneliness, the confusion, the darkness, all that has come upon you was only a cloak for my endless love for you, my desire to bring you close to me. Now we can understand a story, one that is told over a seven-week period every year. During the three weeks of the summer leading up to the ninth of Av, the day that marks the destruction of Jerusalem and the beginning of our long exile, we read each Shabbat a different prophecy of that calamity and the suffering that ensued in its wake. Then, beginning the Shabbat after the ninth of Av for seven weeks, we read each Shabbat a different prophecy of consolation and comfort. The standard comprehensive Jewish code for all things liturgical is that of Rabbi David Avudraham. 14th century Seville. After recording all the Haftarot for the year, he cites a tradition concerning these seven weeks of consolation. He explains how the first line of each Haftarah tells another chapter of a story of an interchange between God and the Jewish people. At first, God instructs the prophets that enough gloom and doom has been spoken, and now they must go to console, console my people. But the next week we find the people are not consoled. They want to know why God has sent his prophets to do the job. Why will he not comfort them himself? And Zion will say, God has forsaken me, God has forgotten me. So on the third Shabbat, we read the prophets reporting back to God, and they say, the tempestuous, suffering soul is not comforted. And indeed, on the fourth Shabbat, we read God's words to his people. I, yes, I, am the one to console you. This continues for two more weeks with consolation in God's own voice. Rejoice, O barren one who has not yet given birth. Arise and shine, for your light has come. And only then do we read on the seventh and final week of our joy and celebration in having heard directly from God. Rejoice, I will rejoice in God. So why is it so distressing to be comforted by the prophets? They'll tell us that our suffering is a happy ending. Yet more, it'll be a double consolation. Console, console. We will then see how all the suffering pays off in the end because it brought us forgiveness and made us worthy. But we won't accept that. We'll say, For this we trudged for 2,000 years through a sea of bitterness, 
For this we were crucified, slaughtered, and threw ourselves in the fire in your name. For this we witnessed such unspeakable trauma as no other nation on earth, simply because we are your people. All this was nothing more than a punishment for our sins, a cleansing of our souls. No, that cannot be. To which God responds, you're right. The darkness was not a monster sent to punish you. Neither was it meant as a cleansing alone. It was I. It was the shadow of my very essence and being as we came close to one another so that we might embrace. But if that is the explanation, then why must God wait for us to protest? Why can't he reveal this truth from the outset? Because, as we just learned, we're speaking of the unknowable, of the very essence of God's being. It's not a thing that can be told, not a thing that even the greatest prophet can perceive, except except through the struggle and the outrage, the scream of indignation, the cry that God has no right to abandon us, that he could not possibly have brought this upon us without some unimaginable, incomprehensible explanation that only he himself can provide and must provide. That itself is a recognition that he is there. With that itself, we begin to lift the veil.